What's up, greetings, and welcome back to the Alpha American Podcast. I am your host, John Michael Banks, and as always, joined here with my wonderful co-host, line brother, brother Eric Hawthorne. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Thank you for joining us. That's right. Thank you all. Welcome back here. Uh, we are happy to bring you another wonderful show. So a special thank you to all of our listeners joining us today. Th- special thanks to everybody out there watching the live live stream here on Facebook. I uh, just want to tell you all, uh, first and foremost, once again, thank you to our listenership all around the country, all around the world. We are happy to be bringing you this show uh, once again. Let's take a moment to thank our alpha artist for the episode. Dre period uh, the intro track for this episode one by the name of dreams and our outro track you'll be hearing is filling myself so thank you to that brother and all the other brothers who are participating in our alpha artists series once again thank you to our alpha artist Dre period and here on this beautiful Saturday in Hawthorne Manor. Uh, we are not joined by our head of security Joseph McNeely but we'll be holding it down uh, by ourselves today so quick uh announcements as always just want to thank everybody out there uh once again who has contributed to our fundraising initiative if you are interested in assisting us and helping our platform grow please help at uh gofundme backslash alpha american podcast or patreon backslash alpha american podcast if you want to give via the cash app we are on there as well at dollar sign Alpha American Podcast. Also, if you have any questions, suggestions, or anything you might want us to go over on the podcast, please email us at Alpha American 06. That is Alpha American, all one word, 06 at gmail.com. And we will promptly get to your emails and answer them on air if you like. Uh, they can be an- anonymous, so whatever you like and whatever fits best. So let's get into it today. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm here. It's Sunday. I just had two days off from work, and it did not feel like it at all. So 
here we are uh, once again. So let's get into it before we get into our film discussion today, which will be on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which myself, uh, brother Eric Hawthorne and JC did go see this Friday at the War Parkway Theater, which I haven't been to in years. Yeah, me either. Yeah, it's, it's been since the, I was probably a teenager, I've <clears throat> been to that one, uh, raising hell up there and getting people kicked out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was one of those ones that I was just pretty much trying to bang kids all together. So uh, happy to be here. <laughs> uh had a good time with my LBs at the movies. Uh, but a few news topics before we actually get into that. First thing I want to go over uh, is a recap item from last week when we talked about the Dave Chappelle comedy special, Six and Stones. As we spoke about that last week, there was a lot of SJW media outlets who were upset with Dave Chappelle's comedy special, called it misogynistic, transphobic, Every word that you hear in today's social atmosphere, which I don't feel like it was. I feel like the comedy special was not at all super offensive. It did not incite any kind of hateful views, just one man's view on the world as it is right now. But uh, along with all of the conjecture going on with that special, there was a Rotten Tomatoes situation that pretty much popped up with Dave Chappelle. His special garnered a zero percent on the rotten tomatoes meter which i'm if you guys stay up to date with rotten tomatoes that's reserved for horrible pieces of media out there uh there's there's horrible movies out there that don't even have zero percents but that was due to rotten tomatoes only allowing uh certified critics to rate these uh rate his special and it was sitting at a zero percent with five critics I believe it was five critics who all gave him a zero, which is crazy because that was a funny ass special, man. I, I laughed. I damn near cried at certain points. So for them to say that it was a zero and has no merits at all, it was, it was just a ridiculous affront to myself. And finally, we had one good review, I believe, bringing it to a 15%, which was the amazing uh, YouTube reviewer, Jeremy Johns, who I know you are familiar with, Eric. Yeah, that's who I usually go to for uh, a lot of my show reviews or uh, movie reviews as well. So, yeah, I like Jeremy Johns a lot. And he's very quick, concise. He doesn't BS you. He's straight to the point. Yeah, I, I will say in terms of YouTube critics, I trust him the most because he, he does give a very fair critique. And a lot of the times I do end up seeing films that he either recommends or or recommends against it's usually on the money so i definitely trust the things that come out of his youtube channel and he actually made a video prior to uh the well video about the dave chappelle sticks and stone special and he pretty much says that he finds it's incredible that's zero percent he just recently found out he was a certified rotten tomatoes critic as well so he went on there and gave his positive review which left it up to a 15 percent I already liked Jeremy Johns as it was, and for him to go out of the way and, and potentially put his own brand and his own name on the line like that, just to defend something that he genuinely feels strongly about, was amazing, and I was I was very happy to see that. Uh, what are your feelings on this matter about them voting this as a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes? It's it's starting to get kind of weird now. It's like the intolerance is. It's crazy. I mean, if you don't have a point of view, which in logic and facts and anything to back up your opinion, 
why go ahead and get somebody at zero percent on Ryan Tomatoes because you can't back up your opinion? That's what I noticed with SJWs, and I'm not sure if you think our audience is familiar with SJWs. Uh, just in case our audience may not be familiar <laughs> with the with the term SJW, just to go into it a little little more in depth, it stands for Social Justice Warrior, which is a term that's pretty much came to prominence over the last say year and a half, maybe right. into mainstream vocabulary. Pretty much social justice warriors are individuals who, well, let me say it began as individuals who are just willing to stand up for things that, things that made people feel a certain way. And now it's, it's morphed into pretty much just people yelling if they don't agree or like something. And they're offended or triggered by the most minute thing or they'll be offended for somebody else basically absolutely and a lot of these situations that these people end up getting mad about aren't anything at all to begin with a lot of the times there's situations where the the outrage i feel like it's mock outrage a lot of the time uh where people are just getting upset because it's something for them to speak loud about something for them to pretty much be angry about and it's not for the purpose of having any kind of political debate or any kind of political discourse or conversation to maybe change what's going on. It's just pretty much to demonize people and cancel, cancel them with this whole cancel culture we live in today. Yeah, they're actually not driving the conversation forward, which is strange because I'm a actually very liberal person. Extremely liberal, uh, in fact. And, you know, I heard a lot of conservatives talking about SJWs, SJWs. And I'm just like, what exactly does this stand for? It stand for. And then, of course, it stands for a social justice warrior. And I'm like, OK, well, I want social justice initiatives to be put in place. I was like, I don't understand why I would not agree with what these people are talking about. But then when I started understanding what a true SJW is, that's when I was like, wow, this is really scary because you would think a lot of liberals would say, okay, well, facts are on our side. We understand science. We understand the way the world works, et cetera, et cetera. But they never use this logic when it comes time to debate or defend their opinion. So that's why I say, okay, these aren't even liberals. These are like, uh, I'm not even sure. These are people who have basically taken something maybe minute and just ran with it. You see it a lot of times on college campuses. You They'll invite a speaker. And when the speaker comes, uh, there might be a protest or something. The speaker may not be, you know, they're not inciting hatred or saying hurt this particular community, et cetera, et cetera. But they're giving their viewpoint on something and you cannot disagree with you can disagree with it. And I think that's the great thing about America. You can you don't have to be one uniform group. You don't have to agree on everything. But what the SJWs do is they come in and they don't they disrupt but they don't disrupt to move the conversation forward they just yell and scream and they're talking about how they're triggered or they're upset and they're offended but they don't tell you how to actually fix the situation why your position is actually wrong there is no discourse there is nothing other than crying basically you know yeah uh, a lot of it and i've heard i've heard people pretty much uh using the term outrage police or speech free free speech police 
it used to be these individuals actually did have a leg to stand on with their outrage because these were actual issues that were causing distress to many groups, such as when the 9-11 happened. And then you start having situations where people of the Islamic faith were being discriminated against due to the terrorist attacks. And then it shifts within the next half a decade or so to uh, misogyny then you have the whole me too times up movement with women who are pretty much saying that they're being harassed sexually and which is also a very solid thing to stand on however when you start having situations like uh, louis ck which dave Chappelle talks about in the special uh, individual who is who's in his own uh, hotel room who announces he's about to start doing something that might be out of left field and if a room full of adults decides they're going to stay in this room after he announces he's about to start engaging in this stuff. Who's to blame? Is it him or is it is it the people who are still there with him who made the choice to I'm going to sit here and then, you know, say they were traumatized later? You know, if I said, hey, Eric, I'm about to start breaking glasses in this in this house. You'd be like, hey, no, you're not. Right. Because but, you're an adult. Right, right, right. No, I agree with you. But I think right there. It's a little different because that's a power dynamic where these I, I'm not 100 percent clear on the Louis C.K. thing, but wasn't weren't these like employees of his that were like standing around? They were, I believe, the women who were in the room while he was, uh, excuse my language, he began masturbating, Right, uh, were aspiring comics who were pretty much working the same shows as him and they believed if they had said something that he would be able to negatively influence their career even though he's never said anything in regards to i'm going to destroy your career he's not harvey weinstein saying i'm going to destroy your career if you don't do xyz for me you know i understand what you're saying about that however that's that's kind of a dicey situation because those are people who who are probably looking to network with Louie. And so in that instance, they probably do feel that he could destroy their career if they were to step out. I mean, it's probably a weird situation. I, I know for myself, I would definitely step out of the room, but I would probably say that has a little bit to do with, uh, you know, some patriarchal aspects. I'm, I'm not going to 100 to defend, defend it either way, but I would say that's what I would think the th- thought process would be. And that is a possibility. It's always a possibility that it could be the fear dynamic. However, I don't feel like when you have situations like Harvey Weinstein and someone specifically saying, hey, I'm going to ruin your career if you don't do X, Y, Z. I think that definitely shifts the power dynamic Mm -hmm. as opposed to I'm in a room with somebody who is maybe a higher up than me. Take my job. If if my boss invites me into a room and then starts doing something out of left field, I'm going to leave. Right. Because at the end of the day, my dignity is worth more than, you know, if I meet Charlemagne the guy mm-hmm. who has a, a very well-known podcast or or Joe Rogan, somebody who's in the podcast game who could really uplift my platform. Right. If they invite me into a room and then starts doing something sketchy, I'm going to be like, I'm out. Because no matter how much you can help my mm-hmm. career, you could possibly do way more harm to my psyche by me staying here and, and watching this no i'm saying i agree i would do the same i'm not even uh, i'm not even disputing that i'm just trying to think of some of the thought process because thought process of the people that are involved because i really don't know much about it i heard that he was doing this sort of lewd behavior in front of uh women 
but I wasn't sure if they were like employees or whoever they were exactly to the point why they would actually stay in the room or felt that they had to be in front of him while he would do that. Because I thought it was initially a joke when he was like, okay, well, you know, I'm about to do this right now. Um, yeah. So and basically proceed to do it, giving them, I guess, pre preempting or prompting them that this is what he was about to engage in. But it's it's just very strange all around. I definitely need to educate myself a little bit more about the that particular situation. I mean, from what I can tell, it's just a situation of maybe you should leave the room. Now, okay. and something else Dave Chappelle says that has brought him a lot of heat is that he's a victim blamer. He's victim specific, blamer. Yeah, he, he's, he uses that term because he pretty much says he gets that rap due to the fact that if somebody does something and he's asking a question he's automatically a victim blamer like why wouldn't you leave he's automatically a victim blamer why was your you know why was your your 11 year old child sleeping in a room with michael jackson Mm-hmm. That makes him a victim. Right oh, okay. So, you know, just asking the yeah, questions. Yeah, asking okay. basic questions like, "Why was this happening in the first place?" Mm-hmm. That makes him a victim. Blamer. I don't think that makes you a victim. Blamer. Well, in today's society, it definitely well, and does. Make I, him a victim I guess, but it would be somebody who would just want to know the answer to the question. Basically, is what I'm thinking. That would be my thought process. If I truly wanted to know something. Then I just asked a question like, hey, you know, okay, well, I understand you're telling me the facts of the matter or whatever happened. But was there anything that we could have done to kind of prevent some of this from happening? Exactly. What was this? What was going on here that led up to this? Like the whole situation with like, oh, I I would say this when I was uh, when we were talking about surviving R. Kelly. And I, I know we bought this up for the umpteenth time but like when the i think it's the mcclary's I'm, i can't remember it's been so long but he was all like well i introduced my daughter to r kelly i got him i got her his number we were backstage with him i'm like well why would you do that right why would you do that you know that makes zero sense you know that r kelly has a tape out where he's urinating on a young lady he uh constantly talks about sexual exploits of his he is somebody that has gotten off a trial for uh gotten off uh for urinating on the young lady and molesting her so it's um yeah i think that's a very important question to ask the mcclary's if that's their name i just cannot remember why you as parents felt the need to introduce your child to a potential uh sexual predator right so i don't think that's victim blaming i think that's just inquisitive thought yeah i definitely think there are some important questions that need to be answered like why are you taking your uh child such as michael uh, michael jackson right even before there were any kind of claims of uh sexual misconduct against him why are you taking your child to a romance house right and the whole time I was watching that Michael Jackson documentary, which which Dave Chappelle touches on, it, it's just a whole factor of why are you doing this? And then every five minutes they would cut to, uh, oh, Michael would take us to, uh, he, he would take us out shopping or he bought us a house or he was pretty much moved our family to California to, so we can live. And it's, it's pretty much like you see this whole thing un- unraveling, such as a, a rich man would, would take care of a cat woman. Right. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna move you out. I'm gonna keep you in this specific location. I'm gonna make you dependent on me financially. Mm-hmm. 
And when it comes down to it, you can't really say anything. Now, I, I don't expect a child at all to understand the dynamics of a, of a predator or, of or an abuser. But I do expect the parents to have some sort of wherewithal to say, nah, no, you're not about to be spending all this time with my, my 10-year-old child. That, that's a ridiculous thing that you're expecting me to be cool with. Right. But the gifts, uh, just like with R. Kelly. The the aspirations of he's going to make my daughter a star. Oh, right, right. You know, uh, there was always questions about if anything did happen to Michael Jackson as a child, you mm-hmm. know, being passed around at these Hollywood parties and maybe something inappropriate happened to him because his parents weren't properly, you know, keeping an eye on them. Or they were juxtaposing the, the ends justifying the means, which I feel like a lot of these parents do do in these situations where they say something horrible might happen. But what's the outcome? Mm-hmm. My kid might be great. Right. So I mean, they try to overlook all of that. Yeah. As if that will constitute good parenting. Like, yes, you, you have made your child a star, but at what cost? Uh, Wade Robinson, uh, one of the gentlemen from the Michael Jackson Leaving Neverland documentary, uh, came forward about a week ago in regards to Dave Chappelle's comedy special and said he was disgusted. Uh, in one of those articles, I believe it was with the Vice News correspondent, has said that Dave Chappelle was making light of one of the accusers and, and trying to uh, pretty much say that the accuser was wrong or the accuser was lying, which Michael Jackson is dead. Like there's not any kind of court case that's happening. You know, he, he's an accuser. Yes. But Michael Jackson's not on trial right now because he's a dead man. You waited 10 years after the fact. To make your claims known. So we can't hear the defense of Michael Jackson, unfortunately. Right. Uh, so when these things happen, I just have to shake my head. Wade Robinson, who is somebody who participated in those two trials for Michael Jackson, testified on the behalf of Michael Jackson, uh, which makes me feel icky all over again. Because if you were molested by this man, you pretty much subverted justice for another victim mm-hmm. of this man. And it wasn't until long after this man was dead and you tried to publish a book and you tried to get a get a job at the Neverland Foundation and all these promises that may have been made to you by Michael Jackson that the estate's not holding up. Now you lash out. Now you have accusations. That's what makes it hard after the fact for people to kind of understand what the problem is. But yeah, he, he pretty much came out and said that he was disgusted by Dave Chappelle's special and that he was making light of child molestation victims. And that's something else that makes me mad is when accusers, if somebody doesn't agree with you, it's not saying they don't agree with all accusers. Right. Just the accusers that may be in your boat that waited 10 years after the, the person you're accusing has died. There's little or no evidence. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a number of videos showing discrepancies between the two individuals in that documentary and, you know, what, what exactly they, what exactly they, uh, claimed happened. I believe one said that Michael Jackson had raped them in the train, uh, his train, uh, house. Pretty much my, there's a Neverland train and there's a conductor house that wasn't even built at the time that he was alleging these allegations happened. I don't like the open and shut aspect of that documentary the way people were just making it seem like these boys were definitely molested by Michael Jackson with any kind of proof whatsoever. Uh, besides their, besides their claims. I mean, do you think this will happen with anybody? If, if two individuals came forward about any particular people, do you think this would, you know, have the same validity? Or is it because of Michael Jackson's 
celebrity past, uh, you know, okay. and his him being low hanging fruit due to his, you know, already having history with with abuse and little boys, whatnot. Uh, you know what? I'm not quite sure. Uh, are you saying? Are you asking? Would would we be paying the attention that Wade to Wade Robertson? Yeah, if, if it was just anybody. Oh, anyone. Uh, are people actually paying attention to him? Yeah, Wade Robinson. Oh. He's 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 pretty much an individual who is, you know, he he was famous back in the day for being the choreography choreographer to Britney Spears in Sync. Oh, okay. he actually dated Michael Jackson's niece for some time. Really? Yeah, and One of Jermaine Jackson's. Daughters. Yeah, I believe it was Jermaine Jackson's daughter. And you know, after he died, and these promises that Michael allegedly made weren't being honored, that's when he started with these allegations. Okay. Uh, but yeah, pretty much people have been treating him like he's a bona fide uh, abuse victim of Michael Jackson without mm-hmm. you know there being any kind of that documentary is a one sided account of what happened. Like they didn't have anybody from the other side. Defending Michael, pretty much. Seeing how he oh, was okay. acquitted. Well, I mean, they didn't have anybody defending R. Kelly in the documentary either. But I think, you know, when you have these documentaries, they're usually usually for one-sided purposes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I still have yet to watch Leaving Neverland. That's what it's called, right? That's correct, yes. Leaving Neverland. Yeah, I still have yet to watch it. Um Maybe I'll catch it sometime, but before that, I'll probably watch the Dave Chappelle show before that. Yeah, uh, it's definitely going to be a, a better better watch for the Dave Chappelle. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely just, like I said, I just want to support it, just see, get my own opinion. You well, know, I don't want to follow these other opinions or whatnot. That's, that's the beautiful thing about um, America and just, you know, living your, your life, you get to watch something or not watch something but you get to formulate an opinion and then you can back that up with facts you can back that up with life experience etc etc and you don't have to give into any sort of narrative or agenda you can just sit there and you know create discourse but you can do it with logic so i could very well not like this uh uh, this special that john michael likes but you know what if i if i don't i can just go ahead and say you know what uh, JM, I don't like it because of X, Y, and Z. This is why I don't like it. I'm not going to sit up there and cry about it, you know. So I think that's the, like I said, I think that's the problem with this whole cancel culture because you're canceling people just because you don't necessarily agree with them because they had differ differ with a different opinion or whatnot. And like I said, if you if we had somebody like Laura Ingram or Bill O'Reilly come to our college campus, I would go and sit in the audience and during the Q&A portion, I would challenge them. I wouldn't sit up there and yell during the whole time that they're trying to speak. Like you have to understand how people arrive at the opinions that they arrive and you have to be able to say, OK, well, this is their life experience. This is where they came into this. OK, this is what they learned. OK, well, I learned this. This is actually incorrect because you can back it up with uh, empirical evidence, blah, blah, blah. And then you talk and then you discuss it and then you go back and forth. You have that kind of debate, but people don't want to have spirited debates anymore. They want to cancel people. They want to cry foul. They want to give people zero on Rotten Tomatoes because somebody is raising um, 
raising just raising the conversation of okay this is what it is in our society and and stuff like that usually it used to be when chris rock or from my experience as a kid i loved chris rock listening to chris rock and hearing his hbo specials i'm like man you know what he had to say about this is so funny x x y and z oh what do i think about that you know i would give it thought like even some of the things that I didn't think were funny, I'm like, hmm, let me give that some thought and think about it. And, you know, just think about whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And then when you talk about it, you can say, OK, this is why I disagree with this. This is why I don't disagree with it. OK, you usually don't talk about if it was funny or not. You just say, OK, well, these are the societal issues at large. But I think people have just lost that way. And I'm not quite sure. I I'm not quite sure. I, I, I would attribute this to when we grew up, you know, we were talking about the yo mama jokes. You know, we could stand on our own two feet and, you know, we'd have to come back with something. Now it feels like nobody tells the yo mama jokes anymore and they can't come up with a retort. They can't, you know, have a rebuttal or anything. They just cry foul. And it's, it's scary, man, if this is where we're going. Yeah, because the country is really starting to get overly sensitive to the point where freedom of speech is disappearing. Narrative in America has really, really slipped from let's have a discussion or a debate over things we don't agree with to people just yelling foul automatically and people taking those situations and accusing individuals of whatever they want without any kind of grounds uh, at the at pretty much. Freedom of speech is protected so long as it's not in, inciting violence against right. people. Uh, and in most cases, we can we can pretty much stand the, the, the fact of that until somebody starts saying stuff that's just ignorant. Dave Chappelle's comments weren't ignorant. I understood a lot of Dave Chappelle's comments because I have a lot of the same questions that I would like answered. But unfortunately, in today's society, you don't get to ask certain questions. Uh, if you don't understand in something uh, in regards to an issue, you're not allowed to say, hey, quick question about that. And if you do, it's they, they are going to paint you as somebody who's intolerant, somebody who's ignorant, somebody who doesn't like inclusion. And that's simply not the case with Dave Chappelle. If you've ever followed his career, if you've ever followed his jokes, it's an equal amount of everybody gets it. He has he has segments about black culture and white culture. Uh, and what makes me the most upset is that you're so upset about the LGBTQ jokes, but the jokes about black people, you don't have an issue with the joke he made about an Asian person. You didn't have an issue with, uh, pretty much you, you just wait till you hear your name called and then you have an issue, which I have a problem with. Cause if you're saying X, Y, Z is the issue, then you need to also confront the other issues on the table as well. Don't don't just sit there and pick and choose what you're going to have an issue with. But yeah, that, that that's just crazy that people are flipping out to this point. But I, I feel like it's it's I've seen a lot of right wing people defend Dave Chappelle too. like a lot yeah, of I, Ben Shapiro, uh, a lot of right wing YouTubers have, have pretty much used this opportunity to be like, see, the left is crazy. And that's the that's the I <laughs> that's the fascinating part in all of this, uh, because I don't. It's not even like liberal people. It's these 
these SJW people are a completely different branch. Like, I don't even think they really believe what they believe. They just want attention. They want the retweets. They want uh, the YouTube clicks. I honestly think that's what it is, because if you were somebody who was a proponent of equal opportunities for whether uh, somebody is in the LGBTQ community or if they're in the black community, the Asian community, you would stand with those people. You would try to see what you can do to get uh, progress made for those communities, but you wouldn't just cry about it. You'd actually back it up with logic facts in action but nobody does that they just want to get some sort of i guess celebrity status off of it yeah and this is not the way to do it because these people who have lashed out against it it's it's such a small number of them so that it's very easy for us to pinpoint these right. people and pretty much look back like the rotten tomatoes critics people have been looking back at the films that they have scored high and it's like mm-hmm. you have no credibility to stand on Right. Because once I take a look, just like Black Panther, when it was it had 100% Rotten Tomato scores, mm-hmm. and it was several people who, who marked it low mm-hmm. to mess up the perfect score, like people start going back and looking at their ratings and say, okay, what have you scored higher than this? Right. What do you feel is better content than that? Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't hold up. At, you you can tell who's, who's doing something because they really believe it and who's doing something to make a social point. And a lot of these people, I just don't believe them at all. Right. Uh, you're not going to be able to tell me Dave Spell's comedy special wasn't funny because I saw it and I laughed hysterically. It's funny to me. The things I got, I got. If you didn't get them, that's fine. That's comedy. Not everybody has to laugh at the same jokes, but you're not going to tell me what I know to be true is untrue. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make me feel bad about it either because it's comedy. And these people can't laugh at themselves. And that, that's all I pretty much have to say about that. Any closing thoughts? No, I, I'll just be watching the Dave Chappelle special this evening and I'll formulate my own thoughts and opinions, not, you know, influenced by anybody on the left or the right or social justice warriors, anything. I'm just going to look at it. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to laugh. I might disagree with it, you know, but, you know, I'm not going to go crazy and say nobody should watch this. Right. I I encourage everybody to watch it and take your own opinion away from it. Don't trust what I say. Don't trust what Rotten Tomato says. Don't trust what BuzzFeed or Vice says. Have your own opinion as a human being and go and watch this for yourself. And you decide if it's funny. You decide if it's offensive and then let your your input be known because that's what a community does. We have a dialogue and a discourse. We don't just have to trust the opinions of a few people. So I, I do urge everybody out there to go see it for themselves and make their own informed decision. And don't don't buy into the the mainstream social narrative because if you were just to believe everything you read you would think dave Chappelle's this hate monger this hateful person which we all know is not the case so that's all i really got to say about that uh one thing i did want to talk about is jay-z jay-z has made some additional statements in regards to police issues and the black community that has gotten him into additional hot water uh, while giving this interview, he was asked about the pretty much dichotomy with the black young black males and police, and he kind of scapegoated 
absentee fathers in the black community as the issue with why there's so many altercations with the police from young black men. He pretty much said, if you grow up in a home without a, without a father and you're a young black man, when the situation comes forward with a police officer coming up to you and trying to tell you, Hey, freeze, put your hands up. The first initial thought is going to come to that person's head is F you. I ain't doing whatever you say. And that's where these issues stem from. And a lot of people have been having an issue with that, with that statement. Uh, pretty much because you have individuals who do have fathers in the house who still do re- react to police in the same way. I don't believe you can scapegoat the whole entire black community for that issue. Brother Hawthorne, uh, do you have any? Did you hear that statement first off? No, actually, I didn't hear the statement. I've heard about the story, so I don't know anything uh, really too much about what more you're telling me. Um, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> It's just crazy that he was actually going to make that statement and say, hey, hey, why do you think this is happening? Because black men aren't taking care of their kids. Like, no, there's been plenty of situations where police have shot black men who did come up with fathers in the home. A lot of the time it, it gets to that situation. Yes, there are a group of black men who don't respect the police authority. Right. I don't know. Maybe. uh I hate to say it, but maybe Jay-Z is starting to become far too removed from what's actually going on, um, because I, I think that's a pretty ignorant statement. Um, he has... Didn't Trayvon Martin have an active father in his life? He did. He okay, and he made a whole documentary about that. So I'm not quite sure where Jay-Z is going with that. I've been critical of Jay-Z in the past couple of weeks. Um, and I continue to look forward to what his actual plan is for uh, his initiative with the NFL, because I, I, even with the plan that has been put in place, I guess with this this week or so, maybe uh, with uh, Megan Trainer and Meek Mill, that still seems not enough for what you were promising and kind of detect. Well, not detailing but alluding to um so i'm still going to be patient i'm still going to look and see what jc i mean jay-z actually has to offer in ways of uh social justice and you know but making these statements i I don't think that that's not good at all Mm -hmm. i mean it, it just kind of flies in the face of the things that you were talking about I don't know the things that you were talking about, like in, with it or supporting with the Trayvon Martin documentary, because Trayvon Martin had an active father. His father was there at trial and all this and that. So I don't know. It's just a little bit confusing, perplexing. I'm not sure if he. I'm not sure. I, I don't. I don't know what to make of that. I actually have to look at the whole entire uh, statement, but that's weird. It's very confusing to me for you to have this social justice initiative with the NFL where the NFL was pretty much involved in the controversy with Colin Kaepernick kneeling to protest police brutality. And now you get on camera and say, oh, well, the issue is young black men aren't respectful because they don't have fathers. Well, that might be true, but you're not addressing the other side of the coin. You're you're not taking any accountability for the police officers involved in these situations either. Like, even if there is zero respect coming from the young black man, he's a young black man. The cop is a cop. 
The young right. black man was born a young black man and didn't have no choice in it. The cop signed up to be a civic servant. So even if you do engage in somebody who's not treating you with respect, that's still your job. And a lot of people feel like you're supposed to treat cops as if they're these deities. They're these these symbols of, of social, you know, superiority. Like they're not gods. They're not kings. They're not knights from the medieval times. Like we don't have to sit there and bow down to them. I treat them with a level of respect because they're carrying a gun. And I know with one, one word that goes sideways, it could be a situation where that come, gun comes out the holster. I wasn't raised with the father in the home. But I still know when a cop pulls me over, I'm not going to be like, what What the hell are you pulling me over for? Because I know that's going to escalate the situation. Right. Uh, but it's not also saying that the police, uh, the police officer involved isn't doing anything to escalate the situation himself. Mm-hmm. I've seen numerous videos where cops are getting pulled over and it's just like, hey, what's with the attitude? You know, we can make this go good or bad. And it's just like, no, it should go one way all the time. I've seen it where they say what's with the attitude or allude to the person being belligerent. The other person's not belligerent. Yeah, it's situations where even if somebody is being disrespectful to you, don't threaten them like a child. Like, I'm going to make this even harder time for you. Like, that's that's very childish to be like, hey, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to use all the discretion at my at my fingertips to make sure this experience is as bad as possible for you. I mean, just imagine going into the grocery store and the uh, cashier was all like they were scanning something or whatnot. And then you're like, oh, could you, you know, you know, they were messing up or something, scanning it. They scanned it in wrong. And then you're like, oh, no, wait, no, you you scanned in uh, uh, the Dahlia onion. That was a sweet onion or whatever. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on here. Hold on now. I could charge you for that, but I could put the price in for a, a cantaloupe. If you if you keep messing with me, now this is only ninety nine cents per pound. But if you keep messing with me, I'll put it in as four ninety nine per four ninety nine per pound. You know, nobody does that. No, nobody does that. You can't do that in in society. But yeah. you know, officers do have quite a bit of discretion with their position. Uh, but you you can't do that. I thank God that every every important occupation in america people don't get to act like that can you imagine going to a hospital and the doctor being like what's with the attitude right you know we, we could do this life-saving surgery on you but we might also just would just keep you in that corner for for five days and not talk to you <laughs> right because th- that's what we can do right it, it's 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 ridiculous it's i think we do need to have a serious discussion in our country about uh police accountability police accountability as well as the discretion that they are allowed in our community to pretty much turn a traffic stop. I can get pulled over today and a cop can pretty much rip through my car because he feels he has some sort of uh, probable cause that I might be a drug dealer or I might be a drug addict and just completely rummage through my car. I remember seeing a, a Facebook Live video of... I forget what what cap it is from uh New What, but he was pretty much getting his car torn apart. They took the paneling off of his his doors, mm-hmm. you know. And this is a, a well dressed young man. Doesn't dress like a, a dude from the hood. Button ups, collar shirts, you know, dress shoes. And for them to pull him over and say, "Okay, we're just going to inconvenience you for an hour 
why we look for drugs that aren't here. Right. What's the point? I really do feel like police officers should get like fined if you pull me over and you don't find any drugs and you just detain me for no reason. Like that's an inconvenience to my day. You mean without probable cause? Not not without probable cause. Probable cause can be whatever a cop Oh, okay. Fines. Like he said, Oh, I smelled something. How do you prove a smell? Well, that's what they were talking about a few weeks ago. Well, a few months ago on the radio. Uh uh, having the police officer, I think it was a case in Lawrence where they may have arrested somebody uh, because they smelled um, marijuana in the hallway, but they couldn't. It was like it was a, an apartment complex or something. And so they had gone through like the apartment complex trying to figure out where the marijuana was coming from, but they just so happened to come across an apartment where there was a small amount of marijuana where somebody wasn't even smoking the actual uh, 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 joint or anything. So, yeah, you, you can't go off with just smell. Yeah, I, I worked with a, with a girl who had a hookah and the maintenance people, when they came in there, I guess they weren't familiar with hookah and thought it was a, was a bomb. Uh-huh. And they called the cops and the cops were like, yeah, we can totally, you know, it's not marijuana, but it's paraphernalia. Oh, really? Even though it's a, it's it's used to smoke tobacco, there was no marijuana in there. But the mm-hmm. fact that they can say, oh, yeah, well, you could possibly use it to smoke tobacco. Mm-hmm. The girl got evicted. Over that? Yeah, over the cops just pretty much saying, well, it's, it's paraphernalia, so you're well, well within your ground, so we'll write this off. Mm. And she got evicted because wow. she had a hookah, which is a legal apparatus for smoking flavored tobacco. Uh, there's many hookah bars, right? And the fact that they were just able to to come together and be like, "All right, let's get her out of here," mm-hmm. that that's not American to me. Like a lot of the stuff I see with the police, it's it, it's reminiscent of Nazi Germany or communist Russia to just see, "Hey, there's a person I'm gonna go and impede their impede their day because mm-hmm. that's what I can do." Uh, but yeah, Jay Z, I, I really feel like these were not the best times for his, uh, those comments, especially given the situation he is in right now with teaming up with the NFL and people really not understanding the program that's in place that you're, that you're teaming up with them for. So these comments just kind of seem like they're coming out of left field and that they're still in one of our greats away. Uh, but Jay Z is a businessman and I do expect him to do what's, what's going to be best for his money as opposed to what's going to be best for the community. Because Jay-Z spent decades talking about selling poison to the community. Nobody said anything. Right. You know, he he spent a long time talking about doing a lot of gangster stuff you hear in rap music. Nobody bat an eye on that. You know, when he was he was selling drugs, when he was shooting people, nobody cared about that. But now that he's actually making business moves and talking about police abuse and how it might not be all the cops fault now you guys have an issue so that's just part of the what i feel is hypocrisy from our you know community uh but he's a rapper maybe if we had actual leaders as opposed to entertainers to actually lead these movements but that would be helpful it would be uh maybe we should you know give dr cornell west a little bit more recognition for the for the work he does mm-hmm. or michael eric dyson or hell even neil degrasse tyson that's my homie hey he's out here and that's somebody who who doesn't necessarily even talk about social issues but just him being at the forefront and being in the media limelight to show an image of an educated black man without he, all the extra stuff he talks know? about some social 
issues. I've seen clips or whatever. Listen to a um, listen to him uh, have an audience response about something about uh, somebody had asked, "Are women not as intelligent as men, and is that why they're not scientists?" And he's his response was basically. He's like, well, I'm not a woman, but what I am is a black man. And I tell you, there are not a lot of black people that are scientists, astrophysicists. And this not because of their intelligence level. It is because they don't have access to those opportunities, educational endeavors, et cetera, et cetera. So he will speak up a little bit, but, you know, he's not shy about his, you know, his background or race or anything like that. So, right. I appreciate that. Yeah, I do. Too. Somebody I look up to, you know. As do I. Uh, really, really smart. He, but he, he never does make his his speaking engagements solely about social issues. It's more about right, the, right. the facts. And a lot of what he says is backed up by hard copy facts. He's he's probably one of the smartest black men I've seen in the past. I think he's the smartest black man. ever. He's the smartest yeah. black man who then, ever lived. I mean. Just hearing him talk and how he can talk to different audiences. He can be on a stage talking to Harvard, the best of them, but he can be on the Joe Rogan podcast a week later, chopping it up with him for an hour and a half and getting somebody like Joe, who is, you know, an actor and a mixed martial artist to understand what he's saying. So he can break it down uh, for anybody. So, yeah, he, that takes quite a bit of intelligence and know-how. Absolutely. And I also wanted to take a uh, quick moment to send our prayers out to everybody in the Gulf region right now going through Hurricane Dorian. Uh, it's We do have a lot of listeners down in the Florida area. So uh, all of you all down there, we, we do send our you know deepest uh, prayers and our, our deepest sympathies for anybody who might be going through hard times down there. It's 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 horrible, especially anybody in the in the Bahamas region, uh, the islands. So just wanted to give a quick, quick shout out to those people. Hopefully everything is getting cleared out and that doesn't last too much longer for you folks. Uh, and before we get to our main thing today our movie review on once upon a time in hollywood i just wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our listeners nationally and internationally uh we have been streamed and downloaded in most of the states in the united states so if you folks do know anyone in hawaii or alaska or uh north dakota south dakota please have them stream i would like to get all 50 states checked off my list uh, as well as our international listeners in uh, Mexico, Canada, the UK, Ireland, Australia, Germany, Sweden, Belgium, Russia, Spain, Brazil, Puerto Rico, Chile, India, Vietnam, Costa Rica. And we just added two more locations, uh, the Bahamas and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, to our list of locations we are being streamed out of, as well as the Bahamas uh, as well. So. Just wanted to give our uh, shout out to everybody who's listening. Just a quick reminder, we are available on all major streaming pod- podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, Radio, uh, Player FM, TuneIn, and many, many more. So uh, just wanted to give you guys a refresher on that. As well as, once again, anybody who wants to contribute in our fundraising so we can continue to expand uh, this platform and upgrade our recording equipment, editing software, 
Uh, we are going to launch a website pretty soon. Just uh, need to bring our listeners together so we can start getting some uh, fundraising going. Uh, so thank you to everybody who has assisted us in those endeavors. Uh, we have been slowly but surely doing some upgrades here. Uh, so let's get into it. Our main discussion topic for today is going to be our Alpha American film review over the Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we had seen, as I said earlier, this past Friday. Uh Let's get to it first. Uh, just a quick synopsis. It is a film that is starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, uh, who are two main characters who plays the roles of uh, Cliff Booth, uh, was Brad Pitt character, and the Leonardo DiCaprio's character uh, is Rick Dalton, who is a aging movie star and brad pitt plays his uh stuntman essentially who's also his kind of uh personal assistant throughout the movie uh so it's set in the 1970s or late 1960s uh first off how, how did you feel about the the film so one out of one out of five stars what would you give it what would i give it uh i would give it probably um Probably like a three out of five. Three out of five. Yeah, yeah. I'd say three out of five also. Uh, I am a huge Quentin Tarantino fan. Like some of his films are definitely on my top 10 list of, of greatest films. Uh, just a quick rundown of some of these films. We've got Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, uh, Jackie Brown, Kill Bills, Volume 1 and 2, uh, Django Unchained and Glorious Bastards, The Hateful Eight, and now Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, so a lot of those are on my list of top films. Uh, so this film, it was a good film. Like you said, we gave it three out of five stars. Uh, however, it was just certain points that was kind of, I, I just feel like it was it was for his entertainment as for opposed to the, ours. Maybe the Academy's entertainment. Yeah, or the good old boys club entertainment. I I don't know. It, I, I, it's not a bad film. I must say that it's not a bad film. It's a film that I rather liked, but I wasn't in love with. And I think that the people that he made this movie for, they would be in love with it. Um, they keep saying it's a love letter to '60s Hollywood. And I truly believe that the people that will watch this movie, the people who would involve, be involved in um, the award ceremonies, the executives, the producers, stuff like that, they would really enjoy this film. Right. And I think that's who the film is for. I don't think the film is necessarily for me, like something like Inglorious Bastards, because this film had such minute amount of violence. I didn't even think it was going to have any violence. Yeah, uh, yeah, that 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 is probably what I was kind of took me out of the whole Quentin Tarantino film feel of the film in the first place was it's just, you know, anybody who knows anything about Quentin Tarantino knows he's very dialogue driven. And when it's not dialogue driven, it's, it's, it's gratuitous violence. Right. Or there's a balance. Don't get me wrong. There is a balance a lot of times like Inglorious Bastards that had quite a bit of violence. But if you look at the first like was it like 15 20 minutes of the film it's just all dialogue in another language so um he, he usually has a good balance but this one it did not feel very tarantino-ish if that is <laughs> a word but yeah, yeah i definitely agree with you on that sentiment about the balance because yeah as i look through this list of quentin tarantino movies it's 
it's usually a it's it's a certain I don't want to say roadmap he follows. Right. Uh, it's the introduction to the characters. It might jump around with flashbacks or flash forwards. Uh, and then there's a plan that somehow goes sideways usually. And then you have a huge violent, you know, climax. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it pretty much is about subversion. Right. What, uh, what you think is going to happen as opposed to what really happens. You know, Reservoir Dogs, when I first watched it, you think it's going to be this film that builds up to the, to the jewel heist. Mm-hmm. And then it, it turns out you don't even see the jewel heist. Well, that's different, though. I think that's artistically planned. This film felt like there was subversion for the sake of there's no payoff. For instance, the whole middle part of the film where Brad Pitt visits it visits the uh, Manson family's camp, and there's this tension that builds when he's looking for a particular friend named George, and the tension mounts up for, I don't know, 20 it has to be 20 minutes. It was a long scene, but it went absolutely nowhere. No. And I'm not sure if there's something on the cutting room floor because this film is supposedly was over four and a half hours long before they cut it down to the two hour and 30 minute mark. Uh, but yeah, it just went nowhere. And I'm just like, what? That, this doesn't even make any sense. And then even at the end of the film, which you think that these two particular scenes could tie into one another they don't they don't the people that were at that particular ranch cliff our one of our protagonists runs into at the end of the film but it's just by happenstance it's not it's it's not deliberate and a lot of times that's one of quentin tarantino's tropes but this was just disjointed to me. I, I just would have to say that it just, you know, that was just one of my critiques of the film. But I, oh, spoiler alert. alert. Yeah, we're, we're going to be spoiling this. Movie. Yeah, so this has been out, seen it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been, been out a good hot minute. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, you know, it, it's up to you. Uh, but pretty much, yeah, what, well, what I mean is that there's, in all of his movies, there's this plan, and I guess Roosevelt Dogs wasn't the best one with, but like Pulp Fiction. Uh, there's a there's a plan. Uh, I guess Pulp Fiction isn't a good one either. <laughs> but take uh, Kill Bill. You know, there's a at the end there's this elaborate standoff between herself and Bill, and you think it's going to be this huge fight mm-hmm. that the whole two films have been cul- culminating to. Right. And then it's a quick, maybe minute fight mm-hmm. scene at a table, and that that's how it ends. Uh, in Glorious Bastards, you, you go through this elaborate plan of these American soldiers sneaking into this, uh, film, film premiere, mm-hmm. you know, under the guise of these Italian filmmakers, which also has one of the best Easter egg callbacks. Very I've seen. funny. Very hilarious. We both laughed out loud. We I think we were the only people that laughed. We definitely were the only ones who got that. And yeah. people were looking at us probably like, what? Yeah, a lot of the stuff we laughed at, they were probably like, what are these guys laughing at? But, yeah, it's uh, a great callback to Inglorious Bastards and one of the Italian filmmakers whose identities they use. But uh, yeah, they pretty much set you up to think Brad Pitt and his troops are going to carry out this uh, suicide mission to kill Hitler and all these higher ups of the Nazi parties, which does happen. But they ended up getting getting captured by uh, Lance. Uh, Hans Lange. Hans Lange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Christoph Waltz, Christoph Waltz character. character. Yeah, so that doesn't actually happen. The Django Unchained, you know, that it's the whole build up to them stealing Bruhimda and Stephen pretty much ruins it. Ruins that, yeah. and you know, then it sends it into this whole sideways narrative. Hateful Eight, they're at this cabin, you know, to pretty much transport a, a captive a person who's set to be killed, and it turns into this whole murder mystery. You know, mm-hmm. that didn't happen in this movie. It's pretty, pretty linear. Right. In terms of a Quentin Tarantino, I, I think they should just cut out the Manson family stuff. Uh, they could should have cut out the Sharon Tate. Well, I guess that's yeah, that's Tate. that's with the Manson okay. family. Yeah, uh, and just I would have liked for them to focus more on the six month jump in Italy. Yeah, you can tell that that's on the cutting room floor somewhere because that part of the film is just so disjointed. Yeah, it's, out of it, left field. Six months later. Six months later, and then uh, imagine you know the whole film is just you know basically. You know, in months in succession, et cetera, et cetera. And then automatically, and then just out of nowhere, it's just like six months later. And then there's a quick narr- narration that doesn't make too much sense. I'm like, well, okay, well, Cliff and Rick, you know, they, they're they not necessarily having a falling out. Right. But they're saying, you know what, we can't work together anymore. I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to see more of the conversation from that. What what what, what really came about about from that? They just were like, okay, well, I guess we'll go have a drink and get real drunk or whatever, and yeah. that'll be the end of that. But like, what led up to that? I mean, what were the exploits in Italy? I mean, because that was such a huge deal at the beginning of the film with Al Pacino's character, where he's all like, yeah, you probably don't need to be over here stateside working. There's a lot of work for you overseas and he you know uh rick leo's character is like no 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 i want to stay here i want to stay here and then by the end of the film it's just like six months later blah 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 and then that's the end and then you kind of come to the end of the film so something was cut out because that just makes no sense right yeah it's and just to break down the characters uh, which i could have went this whole movie with just leo and brad I would have loved that actually, because I felt like uh, after the after the film concluded, I just felt like we just didn't get that much of them. Like the 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 movie is is centered around their friendship, the way it's this work relationship that is evolved into this kind of a uh, parasitic relationship. Like they both need each other. Like Rick mm-hmm. Dalton is this washed up, well symbiotic. Yeah, so I guess that's a better word. Yeah, yeah uh, but he's this washed up alcoholic. <laughs> Yeah. has been actor who you know al pacino has this has this uh, scene with him where he's pretty much breaking down how they're using him as a stepping stool for other actors to uh, ascend in their tv right. shows by you know them beating up his character mm-hmm. uh and uh cliff booth the stuntman is pretty much just a, a personal assistant you know yep. he hasn't he, he says in the movie he hasn't had a stuntman career for quite some time now mm-hmm. and you know they pretty much need each other you know Leo's character has DUI, so he can't drive anywhere, and he can't really do anything for himself because he's just this coddled Hollywood actor, mm-hmm. you know, who needs pep talks and, and cries in the middle of, of, you know, bad. He cries quite a few times in this movie. Yeah, but the, <laughs> but the acting is so good in this movie. I, I don't know how to explain it, but Leonardo DiCaprio is an actor playing an actor who's acting. In a a movie. movie, And it's really good. And when I thought about it last night, I'm like, this is really good acting. This part is really good storytelling as well. But we don't get enough of that. Uh, I think Brad Pitt's 
character was hilarious. He was easily the most likable character in the film, but they have him doing a lot of driving. Oh yeah. There's a lot of driving in this film. There's a, a there's an entire scene where he drives from the Hollywood Hills to Van Nuys, California. Right. And I feel like it wasn't any cuts. It was just a one shot. <laughs> so you have directions on how to get from the Hollywood Hills to Van Nuys, California. Yeah, it was really weird. Like I said, this is probably not a film for uh, John Michael and I. This is a film for like some of the Hollywood elites. You Har- know? Harvey Weinstein. Maybe so. Well, he's not a, he's not a producer on this film. I think this is the first film where he's not a producer on. Gosh. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do think it's an inside movie that I, I don't know. Maybe if there was like a movie about becoming an alpha, you know, with a bunch of inside jokes and, you know, yeah. behind the scenes, we would probably get it. We would, we would probably be like, oh, yeah, I get that. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's how it is, you know, but that's, yeah, it was very Oscar Beatty in a way, which, which is something you really don't see from Quentin Tarantino because he doesn't care. Well, he didn't care until I think about this film. I think once he said, hmm, you know what? My actors are getting, you know, Academy nominations because I think he got the best screenplay for Pulp Fiction and then Django Unchained, if I'm correct. I know he did for Django Unchained. And then, of course, Christoph Waltz won two Oscars for two of his movies. So I think maybe he's like, hmm, let me kind of switch course here. Um, and think he was like I should be winning these awards yeah he said maybe I should be winning these awards but um, let's see yeah the, the I, I don't think he adequately used Margot Robbie who, which is a great actress if you if you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street her and Leonardo DiCaprio's dynamic is like really funny really edgy great acting uh of course, Martin Scorsese directed that. I think that came out in 2013. Uh, but here she's doing a lot of smiling, head nodding. Uh, not really. I, it is acting. I don't want to diminish her role, but such a great actress, a young, great actress. You, I think they could have utilized her better in uh, this movie. Yeah, definitely. And I just feel like the whole... Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, Jay Sebring thing. They spent way, way too much. Like, if they just would have made it that scene where they pull up next to him in the car and was like, oh, do you know who that is? That's Roman Polanski and uh, Sharon Tate. They live next door. That's all I needed. That's all we needed, but... They should have just had Brad drop that hippie chick off at the Spawn Ranch. (laughs) So we know, okay, Sharon Tate, uh, the Spawn Ranch, uh, with Charlie, the Manson family. Boom. Right. We already have that connection. We don't need to go into any here. Let me see where George Spawn is. Let me make sure George Spawn's okay. Nobody cares. Right. Because nobody did care. And then it, it was a scene that went absolutely nowhere. Nowhere. I mean, the only redeeming thing about that scene is we saw a really cool moment where Brad Pitt beats up a guy in that scene. I mean, there wasn't any really witty dialogue or anything. But it's pointless because they are already established he's a badass and a right. good fighter with the Bruce Lee fight. Right. That, which it, is something that, that's bound to piss people off also when you see this movie. They pretty much make Bruce Lee out to be a guy who's just a, a, a talker. Essentially, he's not oh, a, he's yeah. not an actual tough guy, an actual martial arts master. He's just a guy who talks a lot. Uh, and Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt whoops his ass in this movie. But you know what's disappointing about that scene as well is that that was one of the scenes that drew me in to the movie. But that was a very long clip. And essentially, that's what it is in the movie as well. I right. mean, there's probably 30 seconds to a minute extra of that clip. 
But, you know, that's one of the highlights of the film. I think another one of the highlights is, like I said, Leonardo DiCaprio playing an actor who's acting in a movie that's in a movie, which is really phenomenal. Uh, he's having this conversation with a young actress that he's starring alongside with uh, for this fictional movie. Well, it, I, yeah, I guess it's a fictional movie. I don't think it's an actual real movie that no. came into production. And um, he's reading a story. He's reading a story about an old Bronco Buster whose days are numbered. And, you know, he does, nobody really appreciates him for what he uh, has done. Well, what he does now because it's a little slower, a little older. And as he's telling the story to the young actress, which he's genuinely intrigued, he starts tearing up because he's like, well, this is my life. This is what I've become. Nobody cares about me anymore. And, you know, he starts crying and you know she's all like what's wrong he's like oh nothing i'm just you know just thinking about the story and then he's like you know what why don't you go ahead and take it and she's like oh okay and then you know he gives her a little insight which he just plays off as a joke he's like oh this will be you in a few years and she's like huh he's like oh nothing nothing i'm just <laughs> you know just giving you a hard time here but he really does a great job in this movie but i'm like man this really should just be about brad and leo's character and maybe some of the shenanigans that they get get into but they spend too much time on the manson aspect which goes nowhere really yeah if, if you're going to make it about the story between an actor and the stuntman and their you know bond and friendship and brotherhood make it about that if you're going to make it about charles manson being this you know looming character of, of dread and suspense Make it about that. But when you try to push these two movies together and make them cohabitate, it seems like they're very, it just become, it creates a divide in the movie. I feel like I was watching two different movies at certain I, points. I was just kind of confused because usually one of the uh, things that Quentin Tarantino does, he certainly has done for the last several of his films, um, I think, hold on, maybe even to the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. I'm not quite sure. I haven't seen Reservoir Dogs in a long time, but he makes acts or scenes. Mm -hmm. He does, he breaks it up. So there's not this, these hard cuts. Um, and those have been uh, very useful, but over the years, I've been noticing that those have, um, you know, uh, not been very conducive to his narrative, like in Django Unchained, there's a particular part where uh, Schultz is going to teach Django how to basically shoot or whatnot and become a, a you know become a bounty hunter, but it, it's like a hard cut, and then he's like, and it's like a near, uh, I guess words come across the screen like, oh, when the mountain pass melted and it was and the snow left, then mm -hmm. it became time to go search for Broomhilda or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, what? It's like that's a very weird. Uh, way of, of doing things rather than having a scene, scenes flesh that out and then with uh, the hateful eight there, there there are a few like that but that's that's really that, that's really not that bad because it's just you know it's it's a very it's a shorter time frame it's a tighter story and then with this one it's a very long movie with weird there's a part where um Til timothy oliphant's character is talking to leo and he's basically kind of laughing in his face at, uh, you know, when when they're on set for the movie. And then 
Tim- Timothy Oliphant's character comes up to him and says, hey, I remember you. You used to be in such and such. And then Leo's talking to him. And then it's like three really hard cuts of them talking. Like this conversation went on for like 15, 20 minutes, but Quentin Tarantino didn't want to take mesh it together or something. And so, and that's why we're talking about also the latter part of the film where there's a situation where the film basically goes with zero narration until there's a whole five minute part about a narrating what happened to Leonardo DiCaprio in a six month time span, which you're actually like, Hey, I kind of want to know what's going on in that six month time span instead of, you know, wasting time on the Manson family and the Sharon Tate uh, storyline. So, you know, I, like I said, this, these are just kind of my gripes about the film, but there is a lot of positives about the film too. Like the acting is, everybody's acting is good. I, I just kind of felt like, you know, it's good acting, but when you watch, when you have somebody with an ensemble of work like Quentin Tarantino, you become accustomed to a certain degree of mastery. You become accustomed to it, just like with the Marvel movies. Uh, you have like a, take a Captain Marvel. It's not a bad movie. Right. But when you put it up against the caliber of the other Marvel movies, especially the nuanced ones, but like the Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. the way it goes in its own specific direction, or Ant Man, the way it goes in its own specific right. direction, uh, it just doesn't it doesn't hold up well on its own. Uh, it, like you said, it was a good movie. I really enjoyed Leo's acting in it. it. Yes, it was tremendous. I can only imagine how hard it is to play an actor playing an actor, playing an actor uh, <laughs> essentially. Right. Because he, he does play, you know, several roles. He plays the oh, yeah, bounty law. In the Nazi film. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he did a really good job, I mean, just acting in this movie for the different roles that he had to play in the film. So. I would have liked if, if Quentin Tarantino could have found a way to kind of put his own works in these movies. Like, you have a specific scene with a... Uh, a a U.S. soldier killing Nazis like that right. could have easily been the scene from *Inglorious Bastards*. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a, a you know a scene about a gunslinger you know killing people on attack. That could have easily been uh, Christoph Waltz's character in *Django*. Right. You know, being a bounty hunter, right. killing someone in the middle of the town square, mm-hmm. just like he did in *Django Unchained*. You know, I would have liked to see that just a little bit more connection, like he does in his other films you know just to just to bind the the films together because it's it's a huge narrative between his films of you know cinema and historical events and i feel like this whole movie was just a build-up for him to do one of his historical revisionist movies but it wasn't really that good though like it in glorious bastards we knew that the bastards didn't exist we knew that but and the only i think the he probably used maybe two characters that we knew that were real. I mean, he, okay. So he, Hitler, of course. And then he uses Goebbels and a couple of other people that us Americans aren't particularly knowledgeable of, but they play such minute roles, but the Sharon, Sharon Tate plays a big role. The Manson family in this movie play, a substantial role, but it goes nowhere. And Charlie Manson, he's in the film for what reason? I don't really know, but you know. Can you imagine if in 
with Inglorious Bastards, you just have these random cuts to Adolf Hitler doing mundane things. Like walking down down the street or something yeah, like that. Like, practicing. Like, can I get in the movie? I am in the movie. <laughs> I am the Führer. Right. Can I have a picture with you, Führer? Right. The, Stand next to the to the <laughs> to the poster. But the but the but the scenes with Adolf uh Hitler in uh Inglorious Bastards, they're all deliberate. They're all to set up something. Right. They're all to transition to the next scene. This film does not do that. So you might see Charles Manson. You're like, oh man, that's Charles Manson, but it leads nowhere. You it doesn't see, tell you that that's Charles. Like, if you're not familiar, like, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Manson family. I'm well versed. Very little, but I knew that was Charlie Manson. But. I knew, I, I'm very well versed with the Manson family. So okay. th- certain things. I didn't need a flashcard to see. Like right. the whole story about him showing up to that house mm-hmm. and seeing Sharon. T- that's a true story. Uh-huh. He, he was actually going there to see the guy who used to live there so he can kill him. Uh-huh. You know, and then he finds out that Sharon Tate lives there. And that's how he has the idea to send his followers to that house. Right. Uh, in the Spawn Ranch. You know, you if you know about the case, you know, George Spawn lived like he wasn't murdered by the Manson family. Right. He was. Pretty much just an old, lonely guy who was having sex with these young girls and letting them live on their property. So that I knew that wasn't going anywhere unless they killed him, you know, in this new history time. OK, uh, which which I would I'd much rather have had, you know, that whole scene should have went differently. It, it was a very big buildup. And then after he even leaves the house and, you know, nobody's out there anymore. Right. He goes into the house with everybody from the ranch just gathered outside the house looking at him. Right. So you assume something bad's about to happen. Like when he leaves, they're going to try to kill him or something. Right. And all that happens is he comes comes out and sees there's a knife in his tire. Yeah. I, I, like I said, just a lot of buildup to nothing. And the, even, like I said earlier, he has that whole conflict at the ranch. And then at the end of the film, you would think that Quentin would bring it back to, okay, well, they're not really there to kill Sharon Tate. They're really there to kill Rick Dalton and Cliff. Or, well, I guess Cliff Booth, basically. But it's not even that. They're there to kill Sharon Tate, and then they just so happen to come across Cliff. And they don't even remember him, but Cliff remembers them. On acid. While he's (laughs) in a drug-induced stupor. So... Yeah, that went nowhere. It, it made no sense. I'm like, why did we even have this part? Why didn't the they film? kill him out there in the street while he's yelling at the top of his lungs? You know, wh- when he comes outside and there's a scene where the where the Manson family pulls in front of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's house with their loud car. Mm-hmm. And he comes outside and just starts berating these kids. Right. Calling them every name of the book. And he texts the guy, the male in this situation, has a gun, literally a gun in his hand. And, no, Squeaky has the gun. Oh, is that who had the gun? But yeah, yeah. pretty much uh, they have the opportunity to just kill this guy who's making all this noise and they're trying to be discreet mm-hmm. and don't do it. They pretty much just turn around and say, hey, let's go kill that guy. Right. Oh, that's that's Rick Dalton from from Bounty Law. I grew up with him. I really admire him. Yeah. And, and then just, the girl in the back's like, no, they taught us how to kill. We saw killers on screen, so it's time to repay the debt because... We're the, they're the reasons why we're really killers because of the cinema and the movies. I don't know. You can be like, oh, okay, let's go. I guess if it was today's time, you're like, oh, well, let's go kill the director of this video game company because we played video games when we were younger. And this is why we're 
crazy now or something. It it, it, it was kind of disjointed. I mean, I, I think I understand what Quentin Tarantino was trying to illustrate, but it just didn't land. And I was just like, okay. And so everybody in the car is like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go do that. And so they go up to Rick Dalton's house, um, you know, break in or whatever. And they find Cliff. Rick is actually out in, you know, at the pool enjoying uh, some margaritas. And then his wife that he got married to in Italy that we don't know much about (laughs) is there. Um, And, you know, chaos ensues. And then you get about, what, 10 minutes of pure Tarantino. Right. That That's pretty much the it's it's damn near three hours of a movie that culminates in the murder of the Manson family. I feel like that was the whole point of this movie. So Quentin Tarantino could save the life of Sharon Tate. Yeah, but on some it, level. But like you said, if it would would have if Margot Robbie's role would have just been a cameo, and you know they put a bit like you have a Samuel L. Jackson narration over that, like do you know who that is? That is Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was blah 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 X Y and Z, and then at the end. You actually get to like see her face. You're like, oh wow, that's Margot Robbie or something. Yeah. Or and then what's his name? Sebring. What's his Jay Sebring? Yeah, he comes out too and say, hey, why don't you come up here? There's somebody I want to introduce you to. I think that would have been a lot better. And then it's kind of like, oh wow, he, you know, Rick would have had this Jesus moment. Like, wow, you know, you you guys actually love me. You you admire me, and he's being the gates open, like the pearly gates or whatever, because. Um, I think that just would have been, to me, stylistically, that would have been better if we never saw uh, her, Margot Robbie's character, speak. And then we finally, at the end, hear her speak on the loudspeaker. And then, you know, uh, the intercom or whatever. And then, you know, Rick Dalton's character's like, hey, um, who are you? Who's this? He's like, oh, this is Sharon. Oh, my God. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm so glad you're okay. Why don't you come up? And to me, that would have been more poignant and then have them speak at the end of the film. But they spend quite a bit of time on Sharon Tate and Margot Robbie's feet. So (laughs) (laughs) every woman's feet in that movie. Yeah, that was very strange. Yeah, I would have loved it if they just would have focused on Rick and uh, Cliff's relationship. Uh, and then kind of culminated in their separation because I really didn't feel too much when they said, uh, we got to part ways, you know, I can't really afford to keep you. It just came out of nowhere and it's like, okay, well, I'm not really emotionally invested in your relationship because we had very few scenes with you two together. Right. So yeah, they definitely should have, uh, not done that hard cut where they did that five minutes of narration. Like, well, here's the breakdown of what happened in this six months. Like, no, I'd rather see what happened. I want to, yeah, months. I want to see Leo star slowly begin to rise again. And, you right. know, maybe that causes him to become pompous. Maybe that causes him to feel like he doesn't need a stuntman anymore, you know, or, or something that pushes the narrative forward as opposed to, all right, this is the, the, the narrative hitch where we separate the two protagonists, you know, yeah. and it was pretty much done because it was just like, oh, we need to we need a reason for them to get you know, pretty drunk and messed up and him to smoke this acid cigarette. Right. And it also didn't, you know, I would have thought that he would have had a more in-depth conversation with Al Pacino's character prior to leaving to Italy because 
Pacino was the one who was setting him up for that, as well as having some conversations with him while he was in Italy. Right. So that I, I don't particularly like Al Pacino's character in this film. Actually, I really don't. I thought it was kind of annoying. But at the same time, that seems like that would have been very appropriate to implement into the film. So, uh, you know, I don't normally have these much uh, this much um, critique of a of a Quentin Tarantino film. But that's why I said this is probably a three out of five. It has great acting on all parts and there's nobody that's a bad actor in this film. It's just that it, the film is a bit just disjointed, and I think he wanted to put a lot of cameos in there as well. Like you said, Dakota Fanning's in this film. Yeah, she played Squeak. Rumor uh, Willis is in this film. You know, uh, Kevin Smith's daughter is in this film. I mean, oh. yeah. So there's a there's a lot of celebrity children in this film. So yeah, it just didn't hit the marks I was needing. I mean, I went into it vaguely understanding what the movie was about in regards to it's an actor, it's a stuntman, the Manson family or somewhere. I just was pretty much was just a buildup with Quentin Tarantino having these shots that I, I guess he thought was going to make us fall in love with Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. Oh, and really, <laughs> I guess, sympathize, her, sympathize with her or humanize her that, that she was she had the makings to be the next. Oh, Huge I thought, I thought you were star. talking about her feet. <sighs> I'm sorry. There's Quentin an abs- Tarantino. It's a it's a horrible amount of feet, dirty feet. Yeah, exactly. and it's very strange. It's very strange. But that's what I thought you were talking about. That's maybe, why I was chuckling. I was maybe not- that's what this whole movie was about. Feet. And Just, yeah, that, that's that's the, that's what we're missing here. Oh, is the feet? These dirty, nasty, hard knuckle feet. Yeah, well, I hope not. Because, and for for those of you who might not be well as well versed with Quentin Tarantino's films, there's always a point in one of these films where you see a woman's feet. Usually, it just happens once, kind of quick shot. Uh, but this movie, it's it's noticeable. Like this foot fetish is up front and center for these films. Like just ugly feet left and right. And if you have a problem with feet, you're probably not gonna like to see it. Yeah, it's very strange. I really actually want to know how much foot time is in this movie. Maybe we can Google that so much. I mean, some at some point. Uh, but yeah, that was very strange. I was very taken aback by that. I mean, you're just in a scene and then all of a sudden feet pop out. Yeah. Just, yeah. Maybe that's what, what happened in the 70s. People just stuck their dirty feet. From you know their barefoot walking uh, on on their dashboard or anywhere, but it, yeah, I really feel like he was trying to make humanize Sharon Tate to be like, oh, what could have been, mm-hmm. and it, it was a build up to, oh no, don't don't kill this sweet young lady, you know, which we know is going to happen historically uh, as her star is rising, you know, uh, but I really didn't need to know about the intricate details of her. Marriage to Roman Polanski and her right. relationship with Jay Seaburn. I didn't care. Nobody cared. I think only the Hollywood elite would care. I mean, didn't even really need that whole scene at the Playboy Mansion. I think you just shot, shot no. that because he was like, "Hey, I can get, I can shoot at the Playboy Mansion. I'm gonna shoot at the Playboy Mansion." I almost feel like we should re, re- like re-edit this movie. 
I really do. Like, this is a movie that could be... I would like to see what's on the cutting room floor of the additional, like, two hours that he has of this film. And I would like to put a John Michael and Eric cut together just to be like, okay, we just want to hear about Cliff and uh, Rick and their exploits and what goes on with them. And then, you know, I, I don't... I don't. Yeah, you, you. like I said, I would just put... Margot Robbie in the Robbie in the film as a cameo at the end as Sharon Tate and you know Leo finally like wow I finally I finally made it you out of all people care about me you know that's kind of like the revisionist history that he did and you know in Glorious Bastards it was like kind of subtle at the end you know but this was like I don't know just imagine like I say here instead of the movie in a glorious bastards about the protagonists and what they're setting up and whatnot and what the bastards are doing. You're just hearing over and over about what the third Reich is doing. And it would be like, I don't really care. This is not going anywhere. Yeah. Like a bunch of meandering scenes. It, it'd be like if they, if they cut off all of, uh, what's the guys? And I forget the character's name, but he was the sniper who was, Oh yeah, I forgot his name, but I know who you're talking about. What they made the movie about? Yeah, yeah. So it'd be like if they replaced his part with Hitler. Just like, oh yeah, We're yeah. Gonna follow Hitler now. Like no, this this is an important narrative because right. you learn. You know, you feel like this guy's a good a good Nazi essentially. And right. at the end of the movie, you're just like, no, he's 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 a Nazi. Right, right. He's he's definitely a bad guy. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's just things like that. But everything I can see historically or revisionist history he's done has served some sort of point in his universal narrative. Like you have uh, the end of Django Unchained where you have a slave massacring an entire plantation and blowing right. it up, which we all know never happened in the course of American history. Right. Which opens the door to, okay, how can you have a black bounty hunter in Montana with, you know, without any kind of racial implications? Right. Because we have a historical precedent set forth by Quentin Tarantino. And you have Hitler being murdered and ending World War II early in a movie theater, which pretty much sets up the ultra-violent films afterwards. And I really wanted to see, you know, them kind of tackle that. The fact that Hitler being murdered in a movie theater, which according to Quentin Tarantino, uh, his more fantastical films like Grindhouse and, and Kill Bill are supposed to be films set in that universe. Oh, okay. These okay. ultra violent films that, you know, are, are the way they are because Hitler was killed in a movie theater. Okay. So cinema is a more of a facet of American culture than would normally be. Mm-hmm. But they didn't dive into any of that. It's kind of like they, with the uh, absence, I mean, with the, except for the whole Francisco the Caca, you know. Oh, yeah. There's no callbacks to his previous works. And I just, that's one of those fun things about Tarantino films to me is, is picking out all the Easter eggs and, the, you know, the callbacks to different, different characters and different situations from his other film. There was none of that. It was just pretty much like a standalone film almost. Yeah, and there were a lot of pointless like I said, kind of pointless scenes, like with Brad Pitt, who a character I enjoyed in this film, for instance, like him feeding his dog dog food. That took an exorbitant amount of time in the film for some strange reason. So uh, that went nowhere. Uh, it's, it's like I said, there's a lot of driving in the movie as well. You got it's a movie with great scenes. I 
explained to John Michael, I said, this is my Dunkirk. <laughs> and if you guys don't know what Dunkirk is, it is a film by Christopher Nolan that came out, I believe, two years ago. And it's great to watch on the movie theater in the movie theater. But you would never watch it at home just because you wouldn't have that same experience. This is a film that is really for the IMAX screen. There's not a lot of talking in the movie. Um, it's 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 a movie that you only see once. It, right. It's it's an okay movie. Not out of the pantheon of Christopher Nolan movies, this is not the greatest. But you're like, okay, it's a it's a it's a good movie. I'd watch it, you know, in the movie theater. But I don't know if I'd watch it again. And this is kind of one of those situations where it's like, okay, great moments in the movie, great scenes. But you know what? I think this is the end of the road for you and I. Now, I would if I had to watch this on TV, it'd be have it'd have to be DVR'd, and I'd have to be able to fast forward through right through it i feel like anybody who does watch it like i have seen it since i've seen it initially and it was specifically for certain parts i wanted to see over again like it's 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 filled with a lot of amazing visuals but once upon a time in hollywood i don't really see myself rewatching that unless it's i catch it during the last 10 minutes and i'm like okay let me see the manson family brutally get destroyed by brad pitt and his dog you said what I was pretty much just saying I, I wouldn't watch it again unless I'm catching it towards the last 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. Well, the last 10 minutes are, are great. Yeah. If uh, we cut this movie down, it's literally going to be like 45 minutes. Yeah, but I would, man, I would put in some additional scenes like, I, I don't know, just like you said, that whole situation where they're in Italy, that could take up like 20 minutes, 30 minutes or something like that. Uh... And then you could also put in, I really don't, we don't really know the, uh, uh, the result of him doing that film that he did. The, what was the film he did with the little girl? Uh, Lancer. Yeah, Lancer or whatever. I mean, yeah, he got to go to Italy to film, but it wasn't, I thought he would have had more adulation or something after that. Yeah. But it it was kind of like this you know, hard cut or whatever. It was, it's very strange because during the whole time that Leo is, or Rick Dalton is filming this set, this, this movie, um, Brad Pitt's character is just off in the world at the Manson family ranch or whatever that goes nowhere. And I would have much rather have seen more of what uh, was going on on set because if Leo's the main character and there's a lot of emotion in in this uh in him because he wants a a resurgence of his career that would have been more important to focus on rather than the uh, brad pitt aspect but i don't feel like we got enough brad pitt and leo together because they're so supposed to be a uh, not a parasitic but a symbiotic team and they you know they feed off of one another and so it would have been great to see them go through all this stuff throughout the movie and then you know, go through all that stuff in Italy. And then finally at the end, you know, uh, you know, Leo say, you know, what? I just can't use you anymore. I can't afford you. I'm married and blah, blah, blah. But you don't get that. And there's no payoff. That would have been a great addition. Because toward the whole first part of the movie, you see pretty much Leo being carried by Brad. Right. You know, he's, he's essentially like a child who can't do anything for himself. You know, uh, the antenna on his house blew down and he had to have... Brad go fix it for him you know he's pretty much a gopher and 
you know, with him only having mm-hmm. these guest spots on TV shows and his 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 show Bounty Law about to be canceled, you know, you see Brad pr- pretty much doing everything for him. And I would have liked right. to see that dichotomy once he goes to Italy and start starting these spaghetti westerns and actually his star building back up and him becoming more of a prominent actor mm-hmm. him seeing you know how useless Brad Pitt really is like right. i would have loved to have seen what Brad Pitt was doing in italy yeah I would they don't show to. you anything he does in italy and, and that could have been used to show like he he essentially has no purpose without being a stuntman Right. You know, and as as his star begins to reemerge, Leonardo DiCaprio, they can show how, you know, Brad Pitt is just pretty much just a, a useless if he's not doing, you know, menial tasks for Leo. And I would have I would have really, really have loved if they would have included that just to be like, I don't need you anymore. And then just to have the scene, the, the movie culminate in Brad Pitt saving, you know, his family's life. Because they would have been like, yes, you do need me, you know, as a bodyguard, if not for a, as a personal assistant or as a friend, if not as a stuntman. Because, you know, at the end, Leo was all like, he's like, you know what? He didn't even want to be around his wife. You know, he wanted to be with Brad going to the hospital. He's like, no, no, no. Let me go with you. He's like, no, no, no. You, you stay with your wife or whatnot. She's shooken up, you know, with this whole ordeal with the Manson family. So yeah, that would have been really good. That would have. Uh, that would have worked out a lot better, but um, I think would 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 you say that this film is a bit bloated? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that's the word I'm looking for. It's bloated. It's. It, I think that's that's my main critique. Is to a great plot point that you think is going somewhere doesn't go anywhere because you get these. Uh, these additional story elements that take up a huge chunk of the movie and makes the movie needlessly long. Uh, so yeah, that's why I would definitely stick with the three and a half stars, but you know, on the, uh, yeah, three and a half stars. Um, I can't change it any higher than that. It, yeah. It's not honest if it's anything higher than that, <laughs> you know, and it really hurts me because I love Quentin Tarantino, Scorsese, Tarantino, those are two two people where I legitimately anticipate their releases. You know, I remember right. when that when the first trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, and I was just like, "Oh wow, that's going to be amazing." I thought that would have been his best film, but I didn't know that it was going to be about this. I thought it was going to be like something completely different. Yeah, and I I really wish it would have been. You know, it, right. it's I just feel like he 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 wasn't true to his roots with this one. No, he deviated from his path. Like I said, I think it's for Oscar contention, right. recognition. Uh, and normally, I don't have an issue with length of movies. Like, you know, we've talked in length. I wanted The Dark Knight Rises to be about 30 minutes longer. I'm excited that the uh, Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman, is rumored to be around three and a half hours long. So I don't mind long movies. I've Malcolm X is a long movie. It needs to be long. Uh, there are films like that get cut down and hacked to the bone. Like I said, Dark Dark Knight Rises, uh, Shutter Island by Martin Scorsese. Uh, just films that become nonsensical because they've been cut down. This film, I don't care what needed to be done to it. It just needed to be cut down because I, I kind of it, it drug in the middle. It drug in the middle and it was not really that enjoyable. It's like, okay, where's the scene going? And then when you thought you got a scene that was going somewhere 
for instance, with the uh, Manson family ranch at uh, Spawn Ranch or whatnot, it went nowhere, right. nowhere, no payoff, no tie into the end of the film whatsoever. Uh, so, um, and I would say another thing, this film wasn't as funny. No, uh, I, I think comedy wise, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio were the only ones allowed to have any, any funny lines in this movie, uh, which were just a handful just a handful like literally just a handful in like you said the few easter eggs that were in the film uh but yeah this film quentin tarantino films are usually uh funny django funny uh inglorious bastards uh despite dealing with adolf hitler and you know uh you know nazis and uh, the elimination of uh, the Jewish population. It was a film that contained humor. This one has very little to no humor, just a few lines, and uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that's that's one of the smart thing Quentin Tarantino does is his his gratuitous violence is always on a group of people you don't feel bad for, like Django right. with slave owners. And Glorious Bastards, it was Nazis. Mm-hmm. In this movie, it's the Manson family. Like, right. you don't feel bad for, you know, when Django shoots the sister in, in that movie. No. You don't feel bad for these Nazis getting massacred and scalped and, mm-hmm. you know, swastikas carved in their heads. Right. I just feel like with the, with the, with the Manson family, it was just like a one-off just to be like, here, here you go. Right. Here you go, fans. Here's your taste of Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, but it's only like 10, maybe 15 minutes of tension. But altogether, just 10 minutes of uh, violence. And uh, if that, if that, I mean, you don't need gratuitous violence in uh, Tarantino movies. I mean, Pulp Fiction had really just really one scene, one bloody mess scene. And the, uh, the other one was like a very strange scene, <laughs> <laughs> Ving Rhames. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you, so it's not a necessity in his films. I mean, but but you see it in, uh, of course, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. And the thing is, I've said before that I don't particularly like Kill Bill Volume 1 or 2, but I would watch that again before I watch this film. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean Quentin Tarantino is very good setting up right. the violence without you. See. Like I said, you don't see the heist in Reservoir Dogs. You just hear the aftermath, like all right. these people talking about, you know, the massacre that just that they just witnessed because of Mr. Uh, was it Mr. White? I can't remember the names. Uh, Mr. White, Mr. Pink. Mr. Uh, well, it was. Uh, what's his name? Oh, I can't even remember his real name now. Uh, Steve Buscemi? Not Steve Buscemi, the crazy one. Who was cutting off the guy's ear while he was dancing? Oh, uh, Michael Madsen. Ma- Michael yeah, yeah, yeah. Madsen. You yeah. just hear about Michael Madsen going crazy and killing all these people during the hype. You never see it, but you just hear about it. Just like in Pulp Fiction, you don't hear about uh, Bruce Willis's character beating a guy to death in a, in a boxing room. Right. You just hear him talking about it, and you know that's the thing about Quentin Tarantino's. You'll you'll anticipate the violent parts in the movie, but he won't show them to you. Right. But what he will show you is the parts that come out of left field. You know, mm-hmm. the Ving Rhames getting sodomized in a room. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Right. You know, uh, uh, Michael Madsen torturing a guy in a chair. Cutting his ear off. Yeah. Listening to Stuck in the Middle with you. It's, right. You know, these, these moments that really do resonate the most. I can't really think of too many moments like that in, in, once upon a time in Hollywood, where it was just like, "Oh boy, something's about to happen." Oh, well, I guess the the Spawn Ranch scene. Like, I really assume like this is where it's going to get cracking. Like, right. 
But no, nothing happened. Like he just drives away, and then we don't we don't think about it until the end of the movie, and just just pointless to me. Yeah, it was pretty pointless. Uh, I don't want to just keep bagging on the movie, but the more we talk about it, the more I find that you know I dislike. I mean, you have uh, who's that? Lena Durman. Is that her name? She's in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. For no reason at all. Like I said, there's a lot of pointless cam- cameos. You know, Dakota Fanning, pointless cameo. Rumor Willis, pointless cameo. Uh, yeah, now I'm going to have to go back and see who all these characters were. Cause... Yeah, and then um, Al Pacino didn't need to be in the movie. I actually, like, like I said, I found his character to be very annoying and I couldn't really understand what he was saying. Uh, so there, there's... Yeah, um, not one of Quentin Tarantino's strongest films, in my opinion, but it is a film for a very specific audience, and I think he will be rewarded appropriately when it is time for the ceremony season. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was, it's one of those films, like the like I told you a couple of days ago, it really reminded me of the film Hell Caesar, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, pretty much just a love letter to Hollywood with... Uh, George Clooney and Jonah Hill and Scarlett Johansson and Channing Tatum and they're just playing these old have you ever seen Trumbo? No I haven't but I've heard of it that's with Brian Cranston right? Yeah it's, it's another movie where it's like you don't really it's a, it's a boring movie in, unless you are a you know film historian okay. and really care about that that era in film mm-hmm. uh, The Artist the year that came out and swept the Oscars for no damn reason. Was that the silent, the silent film? film. Yeah, okay, yeah. It was, yeah. It was yeah, I don't understand. It, it beat out a lot of good films that year. Shakespeare in Love beat out Saving Private Ryan. That was Harvey Weinstein. That is when people pretty much feel like that's when the Oscars started to mean less and less. Oh, okay. Well, you know, you have those uh, those situations. I What's that film like? American Beauty. I didn't like that as well. I liked American Beauty. Or Crash. We were just talking yeah, about yeah, Crash. Crash is the is the biggest culprit. Like when I was in high school, I thought Crash was this great film, but when I watch it now, it like sickens me. <laughs> yeah, it, that's because you're a, a social justice warrior. I'm a social. <laughs> yeah, a, that 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 social justice warriors are people who watch Crash and say this is such a good movie. <laughs> Back then, yeah, but now I'm just like, you know what? This is. A horrible movie. It's this serendipitous cheap, ending. <laughs> cheap. Just cheap writing. <laughs> Very cheap. In every aspect. Uh, let's see. The Artist beat out The Descendants. That was an alright movie. Uh, the Help. It beat out The Help. Moneyball. Uh, well, it, it really didn't have that much competition. I think The Help probably should have won. No, I didn't like The Help uh, it, for I, reasons. <laughs> Well, I didn't see the artist because it just looked boring as all balls. The Descendants was a decent movie. Um, I thought Moneyball was a Moneyball was good. The, that year was going to be the movie. Yeah, that year. Uh, yeah, I would have imagined the Help would have should have won uh, by usual Hollywood standards, uh, but it didn't. So uh, yeah, it's just certain films Hollywood does love to see, and. They are more than happy to reward right. for that uh, unfortunate waste of my time. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely think he will be getting nominated. I mean, he's been getting nominated the last few films he's come out with. But like you said, he's not been winning them, uh, unfortunately. Right. Uh, 
yeah so i just i just actually was looking at the list from that year the artist one uh yeah not a good year for movies that year well but you got to play the game in hollywood you know that like leo they didn't give him an oscar even though he had done many oscar worthy uh nominee uh performances they didn't give him one until the revenant they didn't give Martin Scorsese one until The Departed. And then they gave it to him again on Hugo. And I'm like, Hugo, really? So, yeah. Yeah, Hugo was uh, nominated that same year with the artist. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. they did win for like some, some other minor category. Right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, but that's really all I have with that film. Uh, so, do you think black people will see this movie? No. Yeah. I and I was surprised no Sam Jackson cameo. Right. That's uh, what threw me off. I thought he was going to cameo or have a narration of some sort because he was even in Inglorious Bastards as a narrator. So they had, I think they had Eli Roth and somebody else narrate in this film. But yeah, it was strange not to hear the, uh, his go to guy who's basically been with him from almost the beginning. Right. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I really don't see black people going out to see this movie, uh, just off the strength of Leo and Brad. Uh, maybe catch it if, if it's on TV, or if you're just a huge movie nerd like me and Eric. Uh, yeah, we definitely could wait to, wait until this movie came out mm-hmm. on Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, we, we probably should have saw it chapter two, but, <laughs> our, our our obligation to the Tarantino is, right, is too too right. strong, so that yeah, that's pretty much all I have for our film review. Anything else you want to discuss at the moment? Onward and upward to Joker. Oh yes, that is is probably going to be the next huge film. I hope it doesn't let me down like Tarantino kind of did. I don't think so, but we'll see. Just a little over, uh, probably less than a month away. But yeah, pretty excited about that. Right. Yeah, but that's pretty much all I have for today's episode. I also want to take a moment to thank our alpha artist for the episode. Uh, goes by the name of Dre Period. Uh, the intro track for this episode was won by the name of Dreams. And our outro track you'll be hearing is Filling Myself. So thank you to that brother and all the other brothers who are participating in our alpha artist series. Uh, so once again thank you to our alpha artist Dre period and our outro track Feeling Myself and once again from the Alpha American Podcast I am your host John Michael Banks here with my co-host brother Eric Hawthorne thank you so much for joining us and yeah God bless and oh six I didn't throw up, I just got back to the tip of my cup I saw ginger roll, now I'm above The thrill of the chase, I'm already faced But not gonna waste my time on my space Feeling out of place Wanna know why? Cause Cause I can't really care if you feel me Cause I'm feeling myself (laughs) I can't really care if you feel me Cause I'm feeling myself I can't really care if you feel me Cause I'm feeling myself Instead of feeling alone in a group, it's better. I can't really care if you feel me because I'm feeling myself. When I'm dealing with them, I swear it's nothing but trouble. There's a dropping sensation, and it happens when I think I've been skating across these highways.
as I blink I can think about the energy that be And the energy in me I'm about to let it free Feeling free, feeling fresher Letting go of the pressure Need to breathe, let it go Need to think so I know I don't wanna let a doubter Let me think they got the power over me There's no way, yeah I made my mistake There's no way I'm a doubt All the thoughts coming out I just gotta cop a moment Then I gotta drop a moment Yeah, these thongs are away to help me light up the day Got the hands on the world, period, comma, Trey And you know what else? <laughs> Honestly, I can't really care if you feel me Cause I'm feeling myself I can't really care if you feel me Cause I'm feeling myself I can't really care if you feel me cause I'm feeling myself I can't really care if you feel me cause I'm feeling myself I can't really care if you feel me cause I'm feeling myself